Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending Friday, the 9th of April 2021. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear us chat to Monica Ducks about her new memoir, Lapsed. Losing your religion is harder than it looks. And we also engage in a bit of chat about hymns. Also, you made some delicious burgers. We had a little bit of a chat about that. Plus, Elizabeth McCarthy did a book review on No Document by Anwen Crawford. Talking Tech, Dan Salmon walked us through the unionisation of Amazon and Mon got a tour of her new workplace. Triple R. Monica Ducks is a writer and columnist for The Age, founding board member of the Feminist Writers' Festival and the Stella Prize, and author of Things I Didn't Expect When I Was Expecting, co-author of The Great Feminist Denial and editor of the anthology Mother Morphosis. Her new book, Lapsed, Losing Your Religion is Harder Than It Looks, traces her relationship with Catholicism and to tell us about it, the former liturgical dancer joins us on the line now. (laughs) Monica, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, welcome. Um, the, the liturgical dancing doesn't quite translate on radio, does it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does in the book, that's for sure. You're incredibly uh, you're committed to the church as a child. And I, I just noticed that you, you write the book that your dad says, don't tell your mother that you're writing the book, not yet. Why the mm-hmm. caution? Oh, you know, I think if you were brought up Catholic and you you left the church and you lapsed, there's always that little bit of naughtiness about it because the family members who stay Catholic still seem to to see you as Catholic and and the the fact that you leave the church is a bit of a thing. And so, yeah, my mother, although she doesn't believe in Jesus, strangely enough, anymore, she does still um, believe in Our Lady. And, yeah, I think she is going to be generally very horrified by this book and I have said to her, please don't read it. Please don't read it. (laughs) So, yeah, but my dad died, bless him, but he, he wasn't actually Catholic, but I think he enjoyed the idea I was writing a book, having a bit of a um, dig at the Catholic Church because, yeah, as, a, as an Anglican, of course, that was probably quite satisfying for him. Mm. <laughs> because Australia, you know, it wasn't a small thing for Anglicans and Catholics to marry. No, it, it's interesting because, and I wrote about this in the book, that you know, up until the 60s, sectarian tensions in Australia, religious tensions were about, Protestants and Catholics, and they were really nasty. And a lot of it um, had to do with Catholic rules about, you know, you couldn't, if you if you married a Protestant in the Catholic Church, you had to get special permission. You weren't allowed to marry until 1967 in front of the altar. So you had to kind of go into the ante room. Um, so it was all very, they, they, these, these relationships were not encouraged, but they happened a lot. I think what's interesting for people like me and other former Catholics, when you grow up in this post-Vatican II world, even though sectarian tension had pretty much disappeared, we still felt that identity. There was still that sense of, oh, yes, our our forebears struggled, particularly if you kind of came from Irish stock. Mm. And so it's, yeah, I I think that sort of lingers in an identity. And in the book I looked at that and thought, well, it's kind of funny because it's it's not true anymore. It's, It's absolutely not relevant anymore, but we have these memories of it. And what about your uh, your children? How do they respond to your you flipping the other way? Oh, see, so yeah, I mean, the book was was triggered by my daughter in Rome. So I, I didn't baptize my kids. I complete. I don't believe in God, and I had no. There was no religion in in my life with my family um, as an adult. And I took them to Rome, and my daughter, at the age of six, 
uh, I found her praying in a church <laughs> and she, she'd never seen me pray. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think she'd ever stepped into a church in Australia and she said, oh, I want to be Catholic and I want to learn how to pray. And that um, uh, that was very confronting. That was very confronting to me. And I, um, yeah, I kind of went on a journey with her because I was really intrigued by her wanting to be religious but how troubled I was by that. And it made me realise I had very conflicted feelings about Catholicism. And I thought I'd left my Catholic past behind. I thought I'd, you know, I was so lapsed and I used to make jokes all the time about the Virgin Mary and I had religious iconography, ironically, on my sharehouse walls. Mm -hmm. But when she said, oh, I want to be Catholic, it was like, you can't be. And there are these, these really strong emotions I'm feeling about it. And so I started writing the book really after that because I thought I have to resolve this because I realised there's so many people like me, who were brought up Catholic, no longer believe, but have this really sen- uh, quite a profound sense of conflict about the church and who they are and what mark it left on us. Mm. I certainly found that right, reading the book had been, a, I guess, a lapsed Catholic myself. But there's really something quite, um, you know, you talk about, you know, there's the term culturally Catholic and stuff and there, you know, there are certain things that um, still draws you to the church, I guess. Like there's still a sense of, you know, familiarity um, yeah. and 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 whatnot that um, that's hard to to let let go of that at times. Was yeah. It, like, yeah. Was there anything in in particular that um, made you a lapsed Catholic? Like, or was it just kind of you know growing up and going, oh, this is not for me. Oh, look, I think sex definitely mm. was the trigger as a teenager. <laughs> like, you know, because you grew up, I went to a Catholic school in the 80s, a Catholic high school, and I was told by a nun in year nine who was my biology teacher that I w- wasn't meant to touch myself in the shower because I might enjoy it, and that was sinful. And so you kind of taught all these strange ideas about sex. I was told I wasn't allowed to have sex before marriage, um, you know, and a lot of the I- Catholic uh, ideas about uh, sex and sexuality are, are really uh, offensive today. And mm. I think for me the big trigger was I was in year nine or year ten and when I realised that the pill wasn't the devil's work and I realised that there were other ways that you could could be, I, I really started deconverting. But, I mean, the process of leaving a religion is interesting because, you know, you imagine conversion is like a flash of light and there's that famous yeah. image of St Paul on his dog, oh, no, his dog, his horse, you know, and seeing Jesus as his flash of light. But when you deconvert from religion, when you walk away from a religion, particularly if it's childhood religion, I think it's a very slow process and there can be a lot of grief in it because you're losing all your family connections in a lot of ways. And when you're brought up to believe in something so fantastical and and so certain, you know, who doesn't want to go to heaven and live with um, God and all your dead relatives, yeah. at least some of them? Like we all, and so I think that that process, so for me the big trigger was sex and the Catholic ideas about sex. Later on, though, in recent decades, and I think this is something most of us share, is the revelations of child abuse that have come out from the Catholic Church mm. um, and that keep coming out and the way that the, the institution has not dealt with this in any significant way. Um, that's the thing that really severed it for me. And that was the thing I really wanted to look at as well in the book because I felt that I think we all share this today, whether you're practising Catholic, ex-Catholic, former Catholic, whatever you call yourself, but you've had some relationship to the church, 
We are all in some way connected to this horrible abuse and these despicable crimes. And I think that puts us in a funny position because on the one hand you've got, I like going to mass and singing the songs and there were Mm. some really lovely things about Christmas and and Jesus is a great guy and all of that. And on the other hand you have this church committed really abominable crimes and it was in my name. So, Mm. yeah. Just the concept of Jesus being a great guy is something you deal with in the book as well because, again, I was raised I was raised Catholic and that is the whether, what you think of the institution. A lot of people always come back to the defence, well, this isn't what Jesus would want. When things go wrong in the Catholic Church as a whole, this isn't what he would have wanted when they talk about him as, as a real person. But you kind of, I don't want to say dispel a myth, I'm not going to try and put anything on that, but you do address that image. Yeah, I was because I was fascinated by that because I think Jesus, not just for Catholics, but for everyone, like we always, he's the he's the good guy, and you know Jesus is the one, and you see it all the time. Scott Morrison is constantly, constantly, he people say, oh, he calls himself a Christian. That's not what Jesus would have expected, and and we do this when I have heard so many um, people who don't believe in God say and send their kids to Catholic schools who had bad Catholic childhoods and they'll say, oh, well, but Jesus had some great things to say and I want my kids to the, to hear this. And so I went and researched Jesus and I, it was it was fascinating. I, did, I, I read as much as I could about, well, who is he? And because there is some speculation he didn't even exist, but I think he did. It seems very likely he did exist. But what was interesting was that I got a much more nuanced understanding of him so that, you know, Jesus actually, and from what I um, concluded, isn't necessarily the great guy that we think he was. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is the way that we use him to, as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I think we tend to do this a lot with belief, and we see it a lot with the Catholic Church and a lot of, you know, high-profile figures in the church who say, well, oh, you can't criticise the church because in some way you're criticising belief. And it's a bit like you can't say that, oh, well, the Catholic institution shouldn't exist because Jesus is a great guy, isn't he? So, you know, do we want to throw out the baby with the bathwater? And, yeah, when I got to the end of my book, I thought, well, we kind of have to separate the baby from the bathwater a bit and say, well, the institution, uh, in you know, has so many problems that we can't then just sort of lean to and say, but Jesus said nice things. He was kind. (laughs) So after ruminating on this to the extent of writing a book on being lapsed, are you closer to grasping what it is that makes a cultural Catholic? Yeah, I think that took me a long time. I thought that would be the easy part of the book. I thought that, oh, the hard part would be, well, what do you do when you don't want to be a part of the church anymore? And and that in the end was the most fascinating question for me. But the actual, well, what is a lapsed Catholic, which was what I really wanted to find out, it was. It took me a long time to figure that out, and of course, there's themes. You know, we, you know, we we grow up with this magical thinking. Catholicism, more than any, you know, many other religions, has just a very. We have saints everywhere. We see the divine all around us. Um, you know, we live in a bit of a magical world when we're children. So there are all these things I think that imprinted on us in terms of prayer. But the one thing that does unite former Catholics, which I think is really what it comes down to is we have a sense of being different. There's a sense of separateness when you're brought up Catholic that you are doing something that is different and quite epic. And I think that stays with us. And I, in the end, I stripped it down to realising that this community I feel with former Catholics like myself, you know, you meet someone, you find out, oh, you went, to, oh, you brought up Catholic. Oh, yeah. They're like part of your team. Mm. And I think it is. We feel like we experienced something that was quite specific and distinctive and in many different diverse ways it, it left a mark on us. Mm. I mean, you you love your family. Your husband fell in love with you. 
uh, is it difficult to disentangle what it is about you that is Catholic and what is Monica? Oh, no. I mean, I, I think that's what I worked out to over the many years of writing this book was I just, uh, you know, I feel guilty about things. I have I have a terrible relationship to money where I, I cannot go to dinner with someone or go out for coffee without the urge to pay. <laughs> I think, And I think that's it. My brother has it too, and I know many other Catholics who have this, you know, you, you have these quirks, and I think that will always stay with me. But I think for me it was deciding, well, what do I do with that? And in the end I really came around to realising I have to not participate in the church because I am appalled by so much of what the institution has done. And for me, that is an ethical and a positive choice. And I don't think I'd ever really embraced it in such a positive way. And mm. it, so I suppose, yeah, I will always have this Catholic Catholicness in me, mm. but it's what I do with it that matters. Mm. Favourite hymn? Oh, here I am, Lord. It <laughs> is I tried to meet Dad who wrote that. I contacted him. I was like, please, can I have an interview? Because he's like a megastar in the state. He didn't. He did not get back to me, and that that hurt. Oh, oh. that's oh sick. no. It's not What's what Jesus would want. You're, you're all brought up Catholic. I yeah. like that one, and um, the Lord is my shepherd. It's yeah. a good one. Oh, very moving. Very moving. <laughs> Come as you are. Come as you are, of course, gentlemen. Be, be not afraid. Oh, anyway. Oh, oh, <laughs> I have called you by your name. Oh, my goodness. I have. Turn it the light all FM. still in there. See? Uh, see? You can't get rid of it. <laughs> all right. It'll be there for the rest of the day. Yeah. Uh, well, the book is Lapsed. Losing Your Religion is Harder Than It Looks. Uh, it's out through ABC Books, and we've been chatting with author Monica Ducks. Thanks very much, Monica. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, Mon, you made burgers the other night oh. and you, you showed us a photo and I just I saw it for maybe two seconds and like from a distance but I haven't stopped thinking about them. Oh. <laughs> I just, they looked so good. Like it was just a flash, just on your phone, you go, there's my burgers. And I went, oh my God. Oh my god! And I mean, obviously, maybe a lot of it's in my mind, but mm. it looked pretty impressive. So, talk us through these burgers because, like, I've been, um, <laughs> like, I haven't had a meal at home for I don't know how long now, like all week at least. Yeah, because I'm, you know, just shows at dinner time. Yes, that's right. And then, and normally, if Kath wasn't around, I'd just go home. And, you know, have something to eat when I got home. But also I've had gigs on and also um, Zoe Coombs, Ma and I, because we're on at the same time. She goes, I'm going to go and try and see more shows. I'm like, great. So she'll just message me and go, let's go see this after our show. Mm. Um, so it just means that, you know, I'll end up at a pub having hot chips at 8.30 at night going, oh, well, this is dinner. <laughs> um, so tell me about the burgers, oh, please. Okay. Uh, well, I've, I've never really made them. Never, it's not something I make because I feel like you get them good out. Like there's a lot of good, good options. Yes. And, um, and they're not healthy, but whatever. Um, what do you mean they're not? It's got salad. It's true. Protein. Yeah. What, well, yeah. They, so I was looking up. I was like, oh, I had some friends coming over to to, to my house. <laughs> I was so hard to say. <laughs> to the home. And... Um, <laughs> And I, I was like, oh, I, used, I wanted to make something nice. I was like, I'm just going to do a real treat. We'll have, we'll have nice burgers and it'll be cool. Um, 
But it's like oh, the trick to a good burger because growing up, Dad used to make them as that classic thing of like, oh, we don't need to go out for, for burgers. We'll make well, them at home. It'll be just, no, just no, good. Refuse to buy a hamburger buns, so it'd be like between two slices of white oh. sandwich bread, <laughs> big fat risol, <laughs> and we'd Dad would throw heaps of stuff in there like chopped onion and bacon and seasoning, and so I was like, oh. But then I looked up the secret to a good burger is just it's just the mince, just get good quality mince, salt, mm. pepper. That's it. Don't be mucking Look, around. This picture was they were plump. Yeah. They were symmetrical. They were incredibly photogenic. Okay. The bun had what appeared to be there was a seeded bun. Sesame seed bun. Yeah. yeah. Uh it was tall without being overwhelming. Yes. <laughs> like you <laughs> Thank could you guys, I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> like you could still hold on to like yeah. Yeah, oh, I don't still need to cut that enough. No, yeah. no, no cutlery. Um I made a special sauce. Made a burger sauce to go Is with that it. Right. Caramelised onions. Oh, that was that was separate. Um, that was like a mixture of um, mustard, tomato sauce, mayonnaise, Ooh. and then some little cornichons chopped up, and a little bit of um, hot sauce in there. So it's a bit spicy. Oh my Whoa. goodness, it's good. But to your point, I mean, it has to be that good to justify because there are there's burger shops on every corner. Yeah, that's it. And if you're having people over for dinner. You still wanted to make them something nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you still want to be present. I still want to be, yeah. You know. yeah. Still want to be in the kitchen the whole time. No, so I kind of did all the chopping and prepping and stuff before they got there. Then they got there and put the patties on the barbecue, some bacon oh. as well. You and know, where'd you do the ca- you do the onions on the... Did that, no, I did that on the stove earlier oh. before they got there and then stacked it all up and then we sat around and ate them. And we I thought um, my partner went and got chips because we've talked before about charcoal chicken. Um, went to the, the chi- went and bought the chips because like what nah. a great idea yeah it was really good do you know do you know what though so I was saying how they're not he- they're not healthy mm. and I kind of stopped I'm not vegetarian but I kind of stopped cooking meat a few years ago like so I eat it if I'm out or I eat it if it's served to me but yeah, generally yeah. I try and cook a lot of veggies um and is really fatty meat that's the secret to a good burger like it's got to have a high fat content. Um, and then it had the bacon and it was in these buns with brioche. So it was, you know, an indulgent meal felt fine eating. It was like, this is indulgent. This is delicious. Yeah. One of my friends who came over brought some ice cream for dessert. So we had that felt fine. And then I was like, after they left, cleaned up and then later that night I was going to bed and I was like, well, I, I don't, I'm not, not going too well. Did you put me pants, mate? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Lay down in bed and I was like, oh, no, this isn't going well. <laughs> Vomited. Did you? Yeah. No! <laughs> oh. No! At the other end. I overindulged. It was too much. I couldn't handle it. Wow. But I regret nothing. I'd make them again. <laughs> what the hell? Just one one, and you just had, you, you didn't have two burgers. You just had one burger. One oh. burger. Oh, it, the hot chippies and the ice cream. What the hell? <laughs> That's it. But it's not like I'm some health health nut, you know. Like I, but I don't know. Maybe I mean, it was all I, the meat. I I understand. I've, I've I've absolutely been in that position before. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of lying there, going, "Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god!" And it's so uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's... like I can't even like touch my stomach. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I thought only babies. Overate by accident. Yeah, I know. I'm a big baby. <laughs> <laughs> and, sh- and so it was definitely overindulgence. You weren't poisoned anyway. No, I texted my friends yesterday and I was like, thanks so much for coming. Um, 
really sorry if the food was a bit much. I actually felt a bit sick. They're like, oh, I felt great. I don't know what you loved it. Thanks, you know. So you're just out of practice. I'm just a weak baby. Yeah. <laughs> you're a weak, weak baby. What a success. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not, yeah, I'm, I still thought they well, were good. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That looked amazing. Um, and now I feel... Now I feel good about just having the chippies yeah, for dinner. Yeah, my God. <laughs> Who knew the, that beautiful picture had such a vile such backstory? Such a sinister end. <laughs> oh, wow. Anyway, glad you're feeling yeah. better now. Yeah, thank you. Triple R. A well-rested Elizabeth McCarthy joins us for our weekly book review. Great to see you, Elizabeth. Great to see you too, Daniel. Hey, Mon and Jez. How are you guys? Hello, good, thanks. Good, thank you. That's good. Um, today I thought I'd talk about uh, Anne Wynne Crawford's memoir, which is called No Document, that's just come out through Giramondo Press. So Anne Wynne Crawford um, is probably best known for her writing about music for the monthly magazine. And I remember... For the first few years of the monthly when the go-betweens Robert Forster was their music critic and he wrote so beautifully and with such insight and sagacity about music that when he left I thought, a lot of us thought, you know, who else is there? Who else can write about music like this? And then when Anne Wynne Crawford got the gig, she blew a lot of us away. She writes about music with, you know, the seriousness it deserves, um, you know, even pop music. Um, she writes about, you know, the seriousness, the seriousness and meaningfulness of pop music, whether she's writing about Taylor Swift or Beyonce or you know, whether to keep listening and dancing to the music of Michael Jackson, um, given his history of uh, raping children. So several years ago, she also wrote an absolutely brilliant essay on the making of Hole's album Live Through This, which is part of the 33 and a third series of music essays. And her essay on that album uh, is rightly recognised as one of the best of that series of essays Um one of the things she did in that, that essay was she investigated and demolished the conspiracy theories that pervade to this day that Kurt Cobain wrote some or all of Hole's music and she applied a blowtorch to all those mm. rumours and conspiracies and showed them for what they are. So getting on to this particular book, which uh, she's written, which is a memoir, it is a complete departure from her work as a critic. And this book is called No Document. It's a memoir of a friendship that she had. And the friend is unnamed until the end. Uh, he lost a battle with a serious illness when he was only 30 years old. Mm. So uh, Anwen and he met in art school. And this is a memoir that is a document of their lives together, as well as a document of uh, the context in which their friendship took place. So it frames their friendship within a socio-political uh, framework, uh, within the context of 21st century capitalism, within the context of left-wing activism and political resistance. And it also frames their friendship and their place in the world within the context of what has come before, such as... Um, you know, historical flashpoints like the Second World War, environmental decay, the mass slaughtering of animals, uh, the significance of various films and the importance of pop and rock music and the significance of making art when one is young. Mm. So her friend, Anwen and her friend meeting in art school, as I said, they're very active in post-9-11 protests against the bombing mm. of Afghanistan and Iraq. They're both active in protesting Australia's asylum seeker policy and they're both making art and raising hell and they take their work and their activism uh, seriously and methodically. 
And look, this is a memoir that's pretty brutal as far as memoirs uh, of losing a loved one goes. So it's not like a, um, it's not a love letter, a typical love letter memoir to losing someone. The tone is uh, remarkably unsentimental and the writing is often raw and chilling. Mm-hmm. And the style in which it's written is really uh, fragmented, at times quite difficult. It demands that the reader pay attention and it demands the reader work at putting together threads because there's a lot of fragmentation. So, um, you know, it's a very lofty book, but its execution is is quite extraordinary. How fresh is the the passing of the friend? It's not fresh. Right. So it's been a, quite a few years. Right. Okay. Yeah. Does it teach us anything about mourning or to make you reflect on your own oh, relationship? Oh, wow. Oh, um, I only say, oh, wow, Daniel, because I don't think her um, motivation is to teach anyone anything at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no um, – I can't stress enough the lack of sentimentality <laughs> and the sort of, um, you know, this uh, the loftiness of it but the sort of sophistication and coldness and coolness with which it's written. It's a very – it's a very, uh, you know, it's a very artistic way of, of, of telling – a reader about a loss and it's not linear um it's 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 quite difficult at times but um and the concept with which she writes this memoir is one which could easily fail in the hands of a less talented writer it it could you know just come across in the hands of a less talented writer as some kind of undergrad sort of creative writing experiment Mm -hmm. But it's uh, it's highly sophisticated and uh, you know very avant garde. It's it's kind of avant garde in that way that um, you know fifty years ago, so many books that were avant garde in terms of style were banned in Australia, and it, it it would have been probably banned itself. I mean, and it would have been keeping very good company if it had it. So it's a very unusual kind of um, you know non mainstream book and um, non mainstream sort of way of telling a story about a loss and it's a very um you know it's it's not a typical memoir by any stretch yeah so banned because it might have been banned in the past because of its absolute unsentimentality no because of its avant-garde way of telling a story but also because of the context like because of the sort of socio-political um flashpoints that she draws on to frame uh, to frame the place in time in which this friendship took place. Mm. Do you think the – how long do you reckon this book has been in the works? Like is this a death that has informed Anwen's whole life? And it... No, I think it's actually like – I mean, from what I can understand, um, the death took place about, well, around 10 years ago. So – I mean, I can imagine, though, that this work, this memoir, which, as I said, is only 147 pages, it would have taken a long time to put together. So so the writing might have taken less time than actually assembling it together because it's sort of written, you know, it's kind of a collage, and what um, do, a pastiche, if you like. And what do we know about uh, Giramondo Publishing? Oh, Giramondo Publishing um, are an extraordinary publishing house. They, my understanding is they have links to the University of Sydney or the University of Western Sydney. Mm-hmm. So um, 
They've been around for many years. They are probably most well known for publishing the work of one of the great Australian writers of all time, Gerald Manane. They have um, published so many of his books. Um, they publish, you know, very sort of uh, left field, um, highly sophisticated artistic um, pieces of literature, pieces of Australian literature. I have nothing but respect for the work that Gerimondo do. They take great artistic risks in the stuff that they publish. Yeah. And was no document holiday reading for you? <laughs> it actually was. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, because it's so short, I read it in um, – it still took me a couple of days to get through because it's not the happiest book to read mm, yeah. when one is, uh, you know, down by the beach. Um yeah, so, I mean, but I, I don't tend to read sort of, you know, when people say to you, what's what's a beach read or what's a holiday read? I have no idea what they're talking about because I, I will just read sort of anything that I feel in the mood for on holidays, whether I'm sort of happy or sad or what have you. Mm. You know, I don't really, um, yeah, I don't, you know, beach reads are sort of, it's a funny category for me because, and for a lot of people, I think. And when you're next yeah. back in the neighbourhood, do you reckon yeah. you'll, you'll think of this book? Like where you read this, it? I think this book will stay with me for a long time. But it's not necessarily a book I would just, you know, say, um, oh, I adored it. Because yeah. it's actually hard to adore. It's so chilling and, and kind of brutal. Mm. Um, but I would recommend that that people read it. Like I highly recommend it. I think its execution is extraordinary. Wow. Okay. It's No Document by Anwen Crawford out through Jermondo Publishing. Um, Elizabeth, welcome back and thanks. See you soon. Triple R. From Bite Into It Wednesdays on Triple R, we're joined to talk deck this morning by Dan Salmon. Hey, Dan. Hey, guys. How's it going? Excellent. Now, what does pissing in bottles have to do with tech? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, here we go. What an opener. Let's start. Every, everything by the sounds of it. Everything. Um, we'll, we, we will get to that. Okay. Um, so, so today we're talking about um, people who work in big tech. Now, when you think of working in big tech, what are you generally thinking of? Like Google or... The, yeah, so like yeah, ping Apple. pong tables. Oh, yeah, bean bags. Yeah. Yeah. CEOs that just wear T-shirts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Put, like a pretty cool golf. place to work. Now... Look, that might be true for people who work in the offices, but that's not necessarily for the majority of the employees, and particularly not at Amazon. Now, Amazon's had a huge year. Um, everyone's buying their groceries online. Um, it's made Jeff Bezos the biggest, uh, richest person in the world now. He's worth more than $200 billion US dollars. It's about the same as Elon Musk, but let's focus on one human bin fire at a time. Um, <laughs> the, the issue is that Amazon and um Tech companies more generally are coming under a lot more pressure about how they treat their workforce. Now, with Amazon, we're talking primarily about their delivery drivers and the people who assemble orders at their warehouses. Now, they call their warehouses fulfillment centres, which is possibly the scariest Orwellian name for anything I've ever heard. I'm going to head down to the fulfillment centre and never come back. But (laughs) (laughs) there there, there is a particular fulfillment centre in uh, Bessemer, Alabama, which uh, is currently voting on whether to join the US Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union. 
Uh, now, Bessemer is a suburb of Birmingham. It's obviously known for a lot of important moments in the US civil rights movement. Uh, there's still a lot of significant issues with people living in poverty, and a lot of those people are African-American, um, which means that this, where, this fulfillment centre is a big employer in the area. There are about 6,000 people who work there, um, and at the, it, it opened at the start of the pandemic. So, you know, there are a lot of people who are being, you know, used, it's their life, it's their livelihood. Um, a lot of complex issues coming together. Uh, the average wage there is about $15 US an hour. It's more than twice the minimum wage in Alabama, which sounds great. They do get benefits and stuff, but there are a lot of disturbing reports about the conditions that the workers are subjected to. And Daniel, this is where the pissing in bottles comes into it. Um, people are generally doing 10-hour shifts on their feet, lifting, packing boxes. They only get a couple of 30-minute breaks a day. Um, and they get monitored constantly. This is the creepy thing, and again, kind of Orwellian. So whenever they're... They have to scan a box whenever they pick it up and whenever they put it down. So Amazon is actually monitoring whenever they're carrying something. And when they're not holding a box, that's called time off task. And that gets logged. And if they spend too much time off task, they get warnings. They can be sacked automatically. Um, and that's made, led to a lot of employees claiming that, you know, that they have go to toilet in the bottles. And they're, you know, not just pissing in bottles, but doing other stuff in plastic bags so that they can af avoid taking too much time off task. That is horrible it's really messed up wow. it's really messed up um and so for the last you know while now definitely in the last few months there's been a push for uh workers there to unionize now um i should say it's not all workers there are some of them are pretty happy with their wages and their conditions and a lot of them are just grateful to have a job uh but you know when you're when you are too afraid to you know go to the toilet on your shift because you might get sacked for it it really puts a spotlight into the way that uh, Amazon treats their staff and, you know, obviously doesn't reflect on them in a particularly good light. But, of course, Amazon being Amazon, they're, they're fighting back as hard as they can. So Amazon appears uh, to be pretty mouthy on socials. Oh, it's insane. It's insane. So, like, they are attacking senators and Congress people, <laughs> you know, Bernie Sanders, you, uh, Elizabeth Warren, like people who are, you know, pretty – in favour of uh, unions. And interestingly enough, Joe Biden, who, you know, he has basically said that unions built the United States the way that it is. He's a very pro-union president. Uh, Amazon haven't really been going at him yet, but mm. also the head of, um, I think he's, he's, he's the head of PR at Amazon used to be Joe, Joe Biden's chief of staff. Right. Oh. So, the, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of weird God, little... It's so incestuous, kind of, isn't it? It is. It is incestuous. Um, and so, so, like... It, when, when you know, uh, there, there's one uh, representative, his name's Mark Poken, who's been like fighting back Amazon on Twitter, and you know they'll, they'll say they'll say something like, "Oh, you don't really believe the peeing in bottles thing," and then he posts a, a photo of that he's received from an actual employee saying, "You know, no, this is actually happening," and then it's uh, it it's got to the point where Amazon themselves were like flagging Twitter, saying, "We've been hacked." Someone's gone into our Amazon news Twitter and is saying these crazy inflammatory things against politicians, not realising that it actually was a sanctioned thing that they were doing. Oh. <laughs> they <laughs> pretended they'd been hacked or they, yeah. they didn't – well, they thought they had. The old pine well, defence. No, I think what happened was that someone in the office had seen the Twitter and thought they were hacked and the reporters oh. – oh. No, 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 actually, that was me. <laughs> wow. And when oh, do, So when does this voting happen – so it's been the, the voting itself has been happening for the last couple of weeks. It closed over the weekend. Right. Um, it'll probably take two or three weeks to find out what 
the results are. Now, it, it, it'll probably be a bit of a touch and go thing because, you know, the US isn't as strong union culture the way that we are, I suppose, the way that we used to be in Australia. Um, I think it's only 6 or 7% of American workers are members of a union. So, you know, they, they kind of equate it a little bit with communism, which is obviously a big boogeyman over there. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, it, 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 it will have broader implications for the tech industry, particularly I think Google um, employees are starting to do the same thing uh, in terms of pushing for unionism. You, Google aren't uh, going on Twitter and mouthing off at politicians yet. But look, if it, if this happens, then you could, you'll could you probably see it cascading to other warehouses or fulfilment centres across. It's just like that, um, that, best, that doco that won the Academy Award last year, the um, American Factory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's just Terrifying One thing that, that I also found peculiar was that, say, the Washington Post, which is owned mm. by your mate, uh, Bezos, who was, you know, very vocal, very anti-Trump, very anti-claims about fraud with mail-in voting, and yet Amazon was pressing for in-person voting for unionisation. Yeah, it's... it's and, and, like, it's just really... it's. The dichotomy is just really odd. And being a big tech, like new, exciting company, Amazon also hired one of the oldest union-busting companies in the world, Pinkerton, who have been around since like the 1860s and were like originally going into like, you know, industrial warehouse, you know, industrial revolution factories and mines trying to break up the unions there. Mm. And, you know, they've, they've, they've been kind of around, again, for like 150 or so years. And they're, they're the company that, um, you know, Amazon's relying on to break up their unions. They're they're resorting to kind of old old school tactics. You said it's not just Amazon? No, it's not. Look, um, I mean, in terms of the, um, I suppose, the conditions of the warehouses, Amazon is in a particularly uh, unique position because they they are very much a delivery service. But Google Google workers are forming, wanted to form a union. They announced it um, at the beginning of January. A lot of people were confused by that. You know, they were thinking, oh, Google employs people with high salaries but a lot a lot a lot of the people who work for these big tech companies are actually contractors and they're not covered under any of any of the conditions that the employees get which um you know again that's that's some an issue that is across the economy but when when you're you know got no job security in this kind of a climate you it's uh it's a it's a scary place to be yeah. as we all know was this predictable a decade ago oh. or not Oh look, I don't. I don't think anyone has predicted the rise of Amazon into what they have become. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, you know, we all thought of them as being, you know, the nice bookshop, and we were all worried the bookshops were going to shut down. But the fact that now, you know, you can wander into a store that Amazon owns, pick things up, and walk out, and they'll just charge you based on having seen you pick things up, is a little bit terrifying. And the fact that you know, no one predicted a pandemic and no one predicted everyone buying their groceries online. That's not something you can do really here in Australia with Amazon, but in other countries, people are relying on Amazon for absolutely everything. Mm. Yeah. God, fascinating stuff. Uh, yes. So is there anywhere we should keep an eye out for updates on this? Look, I mean, it, I, I generally get my news on this kind of stuff from The Intercept. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty good. But look, it's it's a pretty major news story. So I think when, when it happens, you, you might be difficult to avoid it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously, we'll be, we'll be talking about it a lot on Byte uh, in coming weeks. We've, we've, been cover- we've been covering the kind of, you know, conditions of uh, Amazon employees in particular for the last year or so. And yeah, when, when this drops, I think we'll have a lot to say. Cool. Mm-hmm. 7 to 8 p.m. Wednesdays. Dan Salmon, thanks heaps. Thanks, guys. 
Triple R. Mon, you went for a tour yesterday. A tour? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, only exciting for me, like if you went on the tour, because I've got a new job, starting a new job soon. Exciting. A new teaching job. Mm-hmm. Um, so yesterday I went to the school to check it out and sort of get my laptop and do all that stuff and um, look at my timetable and... Is it a good laptop? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of laptop did you get? It's just a silver one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's cute. Do you put stickers on it or do you have to give it back? It's heavy. <laughs> it's not heavy. Okay. Yeah. They give you a case with it? With a flap? Yeah. Got a case. Velcro a flap case. for the no, cable? No, it's like a little... <laughs> I'm not talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> she's got a zip. It doesn't open all the way, so you just like slot it in the top. Oh, anyway. yeah. And yeah. you zip it up. And then you zip yeah. it up. Yeah. Make sure you zip it up. You don't want yeah. to pick it up. Oh, I don't know. Oh, embarrassing. Oh, <laughs> my you, God. And have you got room to put your charger in there, the cable? I hope so. Mm. Have it checked. Um, what kind of charger? <laughs> <laughs> it's a big fat battery in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> really bottom of the barrel Do you stuff have, here. Um, spare battery? Do no. I what? You have a spare battery for you? No, no, no spare battery. What kind of life is no, this? No, I've thing? gone too far. Yeah, just a charger. <laughs> um, got your like, and how's the school? Seems nice. Um, Do you see any, meet any students or anything? No, because it's school holidays. Oh, of course. So it was a weird kind of experience. Well, not you know. Yeah, it is weird going to a school when there's no kids there. And you're like, I wonder what this is going to be like. You know? Yeah. And having renovations at the moment, so there's a bunch. But I met the maintenance guy. Like, oh, this is Graham. G'day, Graham. Graham oh. was wearing a bomber's cap. Oh, hello. Oh. I said, nice hat, and he didn't hear it. Then I was like, oh, damn it. Oh. <laughs> trying to be cool, trying yeah. to get in. Is there Graham. four square? Like, what, what do we have painted on the quadrangle? No, I didn't notice any of that. Um, but there's lots of, like, different little spaces to sit Nice trees. Four square. Any Did you call it four square or down ball? Uh, a four down ball is a different game. Isn't down balls. Well, that's this is. I think I've had had that argument at the time. Yeah. Because isn't down ball against a wall? In my opinion, yeah. Like squash. <laughs> right. Yeah, like poor man squash. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was at school, it was just handball. Oh, but then there's European handball. Yeah. We knew the difference. <laughs> You didn't never like, start a game of European handball lunchtime and think, yeah, oh. No, wrong one. <laughs> was there any, was bike shed? Did it go over your ciggies? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I went out. Yeah, I met the principal and it was like, <laughs> just going to go for a little ciggy around the back. Don't even smoke, but I just want to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> where's, where's the bike shed? <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> Do you know there were three teachers in ours at school? Who used to smoke behind the gym? Like three teachers used to go together. We all knew they did it. Oh. Um, and then one of them used to. One was my friend's mum, but another guy. He used to. Um, he would keep a packet of cigarettes in his, his shirt one. pocket, but then cover it with the floppy disk. <laughs> <laughs> so always had a floppy disk in his shirt pocket that was really thick. <laughs> We know what's going on there. We'd all, we'd That's always amazing. see that science teacher go behind the building. We're like, oh, there goes Mr. Date to have his <laughs> yeah. have a bit of a chuff. <laughs> yeah. I had a PE teacher that was a fagged on. Really? Yeah. Which it was quite shocking, obviously, because... That was the PE teacher. That was the PE yeah. teacher. Uh, but, yeah, behind... I, I didn't know that they would have done it, as you say, in full view of everybody. In oh, pro- but this was... They were hiding, but I was a bit like... They were hiding, but we knew where they went, and they yeah. stunk as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that was the same with our science teacher. We were just like, oh, yeah, going for a bit of a wander, and you, 
comebacks. They, yeah, they yeah. just smell so bad. Yeah, can't believe he just disguised it with a floppy disk. It's That's so, just wild. Also, like, this was mid-2000s. Like, I wasn't at school when floppy disks... Yeah, we'd upgraded to CD-ROMs. Yeah, you, you think CD-ROMs are like a 30 megabyte USB by then, maybe. Maybe we still were using floppy disks. I don't know. It's hard at but anyway. Um, well, that's exciting. So how are you going to hide your ciggies? <laughs> <laughs> I'm... Um, if I smoke them all at once, they won't... Like a, like a pan flute, then they won't. Are you, are you nervous? Did you get a parking spot? <laughs> Do you know what he told me? He's like, oh, you get a parking spot one day a week. Oh. And, it's, and we don't know what day it is yet. Um, so you have to walk Pop every luck. other day, or no? Then you've got. He's like, but on this street, it's it's um it's two hours. <laughs> this you got to go here. You'll be moving your car every two hours somehow. Yeah, I think I have to duck out at lunchtime. Can you? Um, is it PT available? Or will you? There is, but it's a different train line to mine, and then there's a oh. bus. And oh. I don't know. I'll figure it out. But because there'll be a period of time where I'm here, I'm breakfasters, mm. and I start that job when school goes back. School goes back in week in a bit. Yep. So there'll be a period where I'm doing both and so I'll be getting to school late after this. Oh, so And so I won't be able to get a park. Oh, it'll be tricky. You'll be walking. That's right. If you get a park down the road, you'll have plenty of time to smoke all those <laughs> cigarettes on your way in. <laughs> perfect. Um, I, um, I've been doing some extra gigs. Um, I did one the other night. Um, at um, one of those bars on on the river, like like Embla. Like, oh, no, it's not Embla. Arbury, yeah, yeah, yeah. A float, yeah, or just Arbury, just Arbury. Um, did he, and they they do silent comedy, which is like silent disco. Oh, my jam. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's. It was so good. Great. It was amazing. You kind of walk in and all these people are sitting there and they've all got their headphones on that are like lit up, like this blue LED thing lit up. And then um, and then you just – so you just hear this this like – so the only um, – the, the mic is only going through the headphones yeah. obviously. So people at the train station can kind of look over and you just see someone standing up front talking into a microphone, but they can't. It's not amplified mm. at all. And then people will just start laughing. And it was so great. Um, there was um, the host got everyone to sing um, "Love Is in the Air," mm. and it was. And so with it had the, everyone could hear the music, but everyone. And that's, I think that's my favourite thing about Silent Disco when everyone starts singing along to a song, and then you take their headphones it's off, so and, bad. and it's. <laughs> Oh, but I love it so much. But it's Love's kind of, in the air. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it was kind of, you know, they were almost a choir. Almost. 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 But, yeah, it was... Um, but it's... Because yeah. so, comedy, like, silent discos kind of work because music is generally quite loud. Mm. But comedy's not loud. Comedy's not loud, but it means that um, because there's direct... It's in, straight into ears, it jokes land better. Because I can hear it. Right. There's no turning to the... What, what, what then do you hear, say? like, individual... Can you hear, like, individual laughs? Because... Like, yeah. But you know what it doesn't work? Like, you can... The laughter comes back. You Like, it kind of feeds through. You can still hear the laughter, which yeah. is great. But the problem is, that, like, sometimes I'll um, ask the audience some questions. Oh, mm. you've done this and done that. But I can't... <laughs> 
I couldn't hear their answers because they're not mic'd up. Yeah. And and because the venue is narrow, so can they – not everybody see the the performer? Oh, it's it's just up the front, so everyone, yeah. Can see. Yeah, everyone can see. um, So that's, yeah, just – it works, yeah, really well. It's heaps of fun. The Lovers in the Air, I think – could you nail every lyric? You'd be mumbling a little bit, wouldn't you? No, some no, no, just like eight the lyrics. Yeah, <laughs> you get yeah, yeah. Oh, and there's a lot of. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.